Hello, welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by Daniel Mueller, the bassist of Wilderon, a progressive metal band whose third album, Veil of Imagination, will be re-released by Century Media on July 17th. The record is, and I say this with all due respect to the band's first two albums, a massive leap forward for the group on all fronts. The band have evolved from a progressive-minded folk metal act into something harder to pin down, sprawling in its themes and orchestration, but laser-focused in its melodic intent. Daniel isn't the primary songwriter for Will to Run. That would be Evan Berry. But he helps arrange the symphonic elements of the band's compositions, as well as the band's elaborate live setup. Over the course of our conversation, we spoke about how Daniel got involved in Will to Run, the band's writing and arrangement process, and their next steps following the biggest release of their career. Thank you for listening. But so now, now, like, luckily we had a setup going that was, like, good for quarantine in advance for quarantine. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're, we're skating by all right. I mean, financially, luckily, nothing's changed for us. Even, even just our daily life isn't too different aside from that, like, we, I mean, we can't see friends really and stuff. So that's, that's obviously a big one. Things like can't take him to the playground now and he he was going to start like a a preschool thing uh mm-hmm. this this fall and like now that now like that's not happening um so it's all it's all kind of weird yeah i mean i i, I imagine there's obviously there's no good time for this to happen to anyone yeah but it does sound like a situation where like taking a kid who's already in school out of school seems so much more confusing than maybe just like, you know, stretching yeah. the the ramp a bit more, you know, yeah, exactly. I, I would, that seems at least slightly less complicated. Oh yeah. As far as those things are concerned. Yeah. We have some friends who have, who've got kids who are in grade school and stuff and, and they're just like, it's, this is just a nightmare. Like you're, you're have to like on top of whatever your work is, you have to kind of be their homeschool teacher too. And mm-hmm. they're trying to navigate all this technology, like online learning that the, the teachers barely know how to do. Right. And it's just like, man. And then like the idea, like I heard something like, like, Oh, in the fall we're going to have, you know, everyone's going to have to wear masks. We'll, we'll come into school, but there's going to, in there's going to, people are saying like, Oh, we might do like barriers in between each desk or something like that. I'm like, this is just, don't. No way are kids going to follow those rules. No. Like, have you ever met a kid, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. like this? <laughs> this is, yeah, it's absurd. I, I've got my friend Eli, you know, Eli, yeah. he, you know, used to be in the very early version of Lambda Forms. He's a public school teacher now. Mm-hmm. And he's had to comp- like create like multiple different Zoom curriculums, basically, depending on all of these different versions of how it's going to come back to real life, which means he's had to do like more work with, you know, less pay basically, you know, it seems like a nightmare. I heard it. I saw something online of like this little girl, like 10 year old girl. She figured out how to like on zoom or something, have a base looping like video clip of her looking like she's paying attention. And she just puts that on and she goes about and like, Yes, I love it. It's like, you think kids aren't going to figure out how to cheat the system? Right. That's probably the best, like, on-the-spot, like, learning in terms of getting used to how to have a job, you know? (laughs) This is something I've realized in my day job is most of my job is justifying my job rather than, like, doing something, (laughs) you know? So it's all about, like, how do I protract the work that I've been given until I have more work to do? 
And so all of those times where I was like blowing off homework by playing video games or, or like listening to metal and like screwing around on the internet, it's like that was the on-the-job training. I know how to do this. My <laughs> pretend game face is on point. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely, yes. <laughs> so so what is your what are you doing for your day job? Is it music related or is it just no, completely separate from that? No, back in uh, 2015 is when I started um, land surveying, actually. So I got into that because um, the company that my father-in-law was working at had an opening and offered me that position because I was at, at that time I was doing like a lot of um, freelance audio stuff and just trying to get the my my business with one of my friends from Berkeley going and mm-hmm. it was like it just got to the point where like we unless something magically picked up like it wasn't going to happen at least not to the point to like we want to buy a house and do all these things in any reasonable time frame so it's like right okay well i need to do this now and 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 that was like probably one of the 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 hardest points in my life like around 25 it was just kind of like just kind of coming off the high of being in college you know yes like that i i hear the term quarter life crisis thrown thrown out these and i'm like yeah I, that's that's real like it's it's I don't know if that's existed all time, if that's kind of unique to our generation. Well, I don't know. I do remember my biology teacher in high school bringing up that same idea. You know, like mm. she was definitely on the younger end of teachers. And she was like, yeah, with the minute you graduate college, those are the worst years of your life. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I think and so. Did you do remind me, did you do grad school at Berkeley, too? Or did you just do the undergrad program? Just the undergrad. I, I mean, I did the dual major thing, you know, doing film scoring and uh, electronic production design with the intention of doing the whole like being able to do film music and sound design and kind of and I just wanted to have like have all the doors open for me and I figured like if I just kind of did all these different things that that it would just kind of happen more easily for me because I was a more well-rounded uh artist and then Mm -hmm. I I think what happened more was just that like I spread myself too thin I started doing too many things and then especially like late into Berkeley's when I started getting involved with Wilderun and at first just as like a like an ancillary thing and then it just kind of after we recorded the first album it was like okay this is really cool I want to keep doing this and and then that kind of over time started to complicate things and I kind of realized okay I can't really keep I, I can't do I have like three major like work things going on at the same time between Wilderun between sound design and between work like the day job stuff so it was like mm-hmm. and i realized that starting up a business is is just as much if not more work than starting up a band so i was like this is basically like just having two bands and uh and one of them full-time. doesn't make music yeah <laughs> yeah exactly one one of them is uh, the same sound effects 50 times in different ways <laughs> so, <laughs> well you know it's, that's worked out for some bands let's not you know <laughs> throw that out in time yeah, right? i mean <laughs> Anna martha's been making the same sound effect for a long time <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh man like hats off to them honestly though like any band that can figure it out to that degree because like i feel like even when we were getting into a monomarth they were already like an established had been doing what they had been doing for a long time and we got hooked right. so yeah clearly they haven't gotten any better or worse they're just like trucking you know as long as they can keep making albums fast enough that it attracts a new like sub generation every time mm-hmm. you know they can always get one generation hooked and they can just like whoever was like into the the generation beforehand might have moved on to other things but like all right just album album number 27 take yep. 27 <laughs> <laughs> something about ravens and thor and you know melodic minor and we're good nice job everyone <laughs> But I'm glad that you brought up that you, you know, so you joined Will to Run while you were at Berkeley and it was basically like a session gig, if that's my understanding of it. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, that, I mean, at least that was kind of my, the way I went into it. It was, it was kind of, and, and we were talking about it recently with the band. We were kind of like rehashing some of the old memories and we we're like, I was like, 
yeah, I mean, I remember going into it being like, okay, we, so I got a I got a call from John, the drummer, because I had known him from work, starting to do some projects with him. Um, and he was like, hey, uh, I've got this band with my buddy Evan that he's starting up, and we've got a gig opening up for uh, Turi Sauce at the Palladium in Worcester, and we're like, do you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> like, I can learn some folk metal songs and do that. So, so the going into it, it was like, okay, I was going to do this show. And then like, as we started rehearsing stuff, they're like, like, oh, do you want to record the album? So I was like, yeah. Cause otherwise I, my memory of it was that either Evan or Wayne were, was going to play the bass mm-hmm. for the record. Otherwise and I was like, nah, I mean, I know the songs already now I'll just go to the studio with you guys and record them. And then we went to the studio for two weeks and like, that was, that's still like one of my favorite memories of being in this in the studio is is that session because there's just it was so interesting going into that recording session and being like these guys are 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 cool and and i like them and let's see how this all goes i haven't been in the studio in a while to record an album playing bass and then by the end of it i was like oh these guys are like the coolest people and like like over that time is where we really like there's definitely like a pre- first studio session will run in a post studio session will run and mm-hmm. that from there it just kind of carried and so when you mentioned coming out of the experience of like that first record what made it feel different to you compared to other previous experiences was that more about the music or about the connection that you had with the rest of the band that formed during that session Probably, probably the latter. I mean, I as much as I I liked the music and everything going in, and that was that was always something I was into, and folk metal was something I was deeply rooted in already at that time. But there was something about like going to the studio, and, and like the, the so the previous time that I had gone into a studio, and that was like back in high school or something. It was like this really weird, dingy studio. It was like in some guy's basement, and he was like this hoarder dude he had like a bunch of shit everywhere it was like just like there's a path you have to walk it was just just like the show you know everything you'd expect and walk downstairs in this horrible smelling garage 9 a.m he's like making apple teenies for himself and he's like hey do you want to see videos of people fucking animals and we're like we're 16 (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so like that was so like going into the studio years later then in my early 20s it was kind of like i was i was having a little bit of that like oh i don't know what this engineer is going to be like i was like a little scarred from that i didn't realize that and then we went in and it's like the engineer was super cool studio was great the band was awesome it was making friendships and stuff and we all stayed there that time because it was in syracuse new york where we've recorded all the albums so mm-hmm. far so it was like this nice kind of two-week getaway trip and just kind of like work on some music and so following that did you then immediately become a touring member of the band or how what was the next steps from there yeah yeah we had we had a tour lined up like a couple months after the the album was uh was it really yeah yeah it was just just after the album was released Mm -hmm. is this the one that you played reggie's in chicago is that right yeah, because I think yeah. I was at that show. So. <laughs> you were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the first tour. That was weird, weird times. It was just everything was just me being like super antsy about everything and like very non-trusting of things. Mm-hmm. I was just like my my guard was super up that like that whole tour. I mean, it was nice like going to to Reggie's stuff. I was like, okay, I know Ian. Shit's gonna be okay there. I can like just hang out. But and I mean, even since even since then, like. I I love touring because I think playing the shows and being on stage and playing a good show is probably my favorite aspect of being in a band. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the like everything are preceding and after that in a day is like somewhat miserable <laughs> depending on how things go. It's long drives are like oh my god and like doing it in like a little van or something like that and it's it's brutal but right and you you guys have a very elaborate technical setup that you have to go through too like this is not just like four dudes with some amps like you've got like a lighting rig that is like synced up to the songs and you've got backing tracks so it's it's not 
as you don't have as much leeway to like fuck around on tour as other bands do from my understanding at least absolutely no i mean it, and it's something that like every time that i'm like setting everything up for a tour like I, i'm usually the one who's in charge of getting all the back and tracks together and and i, I do the lighting and everything and it's just like like the the week or two before a tour, I'm like, why do we do this? Like, this is stupid. Like, everyone's just gonna be going home by the time we get on stage. <laughs> like, I hate this. And then like, then we do it, and and actually like people are like, oh, the lighting was super cool, and like the 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 backing tracks were great. I'm like, okay, all right, maybe it's worth doing. And then mm-hmm. and then it, I I refill fill that meter until next time I have to do it. And but I mean, as things go go on I, I kind of like I get more into it and I find I find different ways to a simplify things for myself not in the, that like we're skimping on anything but I'm like okay well how can we make setup easier can we have things plugged in in advance and stuff like that and this like the last little tour we did after Veil was released I had like built these lighting boxes and stuff and put like sweeper LEDs in them with like uh, mirror sheeting to like throw the light in weird ways and and just kind of like was kind of like because I was I was just starting to get into like woodworking stuff too in my in my own time so I was like all right how do I combine that and like make something cool and unique looking so like that was something that was like okay cool I can reinvigorate myself a little bit and not be dreading the setup period before every tour right right so the last time I believe that we saw each other was on the tour for the second record when you played at liars club in chicago i want to say in like 2015 was it liars or was it uh no it it was cobra lounge Lounge. Lounge. yes yeah getting my chicago metal clubs confused (laughs) um and it's funny i was just going back i still have like some of those audio clips from that interview which you know regretfully never made it to print (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I was a rookie at the time, so I still didn't have like all of my chops to actually put together the idea that I had. But it's funny because I feel like after that, there was a period where I didn't really, you know, so much happened in life just generally like shortly thereafter. And, you know, I moved back to New York and I kind of didn't hear from Wilderun for a, a while. And I had thought the second record was like a big improvement. It felt like much more cohesive, much less you know, pastiche, if you know what I mean, yeah. uh, genre-wise. And then this new record came out and just blew everything else out of the water in terms of reaction and then actually hearing it. And it was one of those rare times where you hear a friend's record and you're like, oh, if I didn't know that my friend played on this, I would probably show it to that friend, you know? <laughs> That's the best description of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what made this album different? Because I feel like there, you can probably tell, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag. It's getting re-released on Century Media. This is like a, a landmark release for this, for this project. When did it become clear that that was going to be the case? Was that something that you knew while you were making it? Or was it a surprise by the time it came out? In, in that it was going to get released by Century Media or just, or just that like it was going to be reaction. It was going to be this big turning point in mm. the band's history, like that it was a level up in some way. I mean, I definitely thought it was a level up. I mean, pretty much. I mean, every every record aside from this past one, I've walked out of like the last day of the studio session, like in her final mix and master and been like, OK, I know what we can do better next time. Like. They might they might seem like small things to me or something, and and then they get materialized in the next record in a way that is is quite substantial, and then like, but after after Veil, I was like, for a good year after that final mix and master was done, I was like, hey, this is a pretty damn good record. I, I I'm happy with it, <laughs> like, and which is kind of weird to to for me because I I'm always uber self critical of of that kind of stuff and. I have a hard time letting go of the things that I know were difficult in the studio. And then mm-hmm. even if it, I'm actually happy with the way that little part sounds in, in the final product, like 
I just know that was a bitch to do, so I don't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right, it's right, and right. that always kind of haunts me. But but no, not not so much on Vale. And I think a one big reason that wasn't the case this time around was that we had made a point of really like doing a fairly comprehensive pre-production demo of the whole record mm-hmm. on our own. Because I I I was talking to the guys and I was like, you know, the these past records or or at least the the previous one we're all living in different states the only we was basically just evan sends a demo we all write our parts to that demo we send them to each other and everything's done online and then we get together for three days before the studio and then like that's the first time we actually hear what the record sounds like when we're all playing it together and i was like we can't do that i mean there's like we lucked out in in the sense that the the albums came out all right and and there wasn't too much variation, but I, but I think it's because we stuck closer to Evan's demos. We maybe didn't dare to, to push it too far, mm-hmm. or at least we didn't feel like, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't have felt like, Hey, if I have this idea that would kind of completely change the arrangement on the second half of the song, it's like, I can't do that at that point. The orchestrations are ready to go and everything. It's everything's locked down. But this time around, it was kind of like, all right, Let's actually all make a point of getting together in advance. We'll we'll play through the songs as we have them. We'll make notes, and then we'll go home. And we'll keep working on them. We'll we'll get the orchestrations going based off of that because now we know what the songs actually sound like. It makes such a big difference of like hearing John's actual drumming versus just you know metal drummer MIDI, right? All that. Yes. Um, and there's a ton more personality, I would say, to these drums compared to the previous records. Like, that's obviously something that I'm a bit yeah. more attuned to. And that, like, immediately stuck out. Like, here, I, the first track I heard from the record was uh, Tyranny of Imagination. Mm-hmm. And there's that bit where it's got, like, the 16th note, like, the 16th note triplet kind of syncopation on the bell against yeah. the rest of the... And I was like, oh, that's... That's some flavor that seems like idiosyncratic, seems like personal in a way that other Will to Run songs previously didn't quite have that sort of like everyone's bringing some element of themselves to the song. Right. Yeah. And 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 we had like we kind of missed the idea of like, you know, when you would start a band and you have you play songs live before they get recorded and you play them to an audience and stuff. We're like, it'd be nice to like do that again. And so then we just kind of like, all right, let's let's finish these two songs and and we'll bust them out on this on this last tour on the last leg of that that album cycle. And I mean, at at first, it's always a little bit like, oh, I don't think they liked it because like nobody moved. Mm -hmm. But that's because everyone's just digesting this like 10 minute beast for the first time live <laughs> through whatever God knows kind of sound system. So it's kind of like, then I'm like, Oh, okay. And then, you know, I talked to people after the show, they're like, well, that new song was really cool and everything. It's like, Oh, okay. Right. We're <laughs> on the right track. Um, what were those first two songs? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Uh, they, they were O resolution. And then, um, then we started bringing out far from where dreams unfurl. Mm hmm. Those are the two kind of singles of the record, so that makes yeah. sense that those kind of came together first. Yeah, we thought the O Resolution was going to be the single for the longest time because it was like the shorter track. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as we were recording it, well, also like I mean, Far From Where Dreams Went and Furl was like the song that almost didn't make it on the record because really? Evan was just so not sure of it. He was like, I don't know about this chorus. I don't know if it's going to sound as powerful as I'm imagining I want it to be. He's like, I don't have that like power metal dude voice. Like, and then like, and then we just kind of like, it just took some work in the studio to get it. Like, okay, how do we, how do we make this huge and like adjust the orchestra to not like overtake anything. Mm-hmm. And and then then like our, our engineer was the first one to be like, oh, so this is going to be the lead single, right? And we're like, I mean, if it goes on the record. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah, then, I mean, like, everyone kept saying that. Like, Dan Swano said the same thing, too. And he's like, okay, well, I guess If Dan Swano have... says it, then I, I maybe. <laughs> you kind of have to listen to him, right? <laughs> so how'd you, get, how'd you get hooked up with Dan Swano? How'd that come together? Uh, I emailed him. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was remarkably simple. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, we we're like, oh, it'd be so cool to like work with some of our favorite engineers and like people who inspire us. And 
And I was like, okay, well, let me do some research and we'll see what the, the prices for these people are. I'll try to find their contact info. And I like I, I sent out to to a bunch of different engineers. I heard back from Swano and he was like super chill about it and like very like, he was like, oh man, I love this stuff. Like, yeah, this, this is my price and everything. And we're like, wow, it's actually like within our price range. And, and some other guys weren't. They were definitely far um far away out of our budget mm-hmm. um i mean far Yen's, from where your instance. dreams unfurl <laughs> perhaps yeah <laughs> zing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like and i was i always thought it would be cool to have like Jens Bogren, uh mix a record but it was just too much for that and and i mean when it came down to it i think we didn't make our decisions solely based on price and everything i mean I mean, Jens mastered the record. We wanted part of what we wanted to do with this record was have as many different ears on it as possible. Because mm-hmm. the first two records were from start to finish all done by the same engineer at, in Syracuse at Moore Sound. And although we love those records and they we think they sound good, it was kind of like we were kind of fatigued by the end of it. So there's no way that the engineer is less fatigued than we are. Right. There's also kind of a cool parallel there between the process of like opening up the, obviously like the writing process, Devin was sending you demos previous, Evan was sending you demos previously, but you know, you got together and you had this more democratic band practice that opened up the songs and allowed you to edit the songs and then you're also getting the additional ears of the producers and the masters so that that whole tree of adding more and more ears to the process it's it's consistent is what i'm saying basically right yeah and it's something that we're we're still trying to like finesse a way of how to make this an overall more collaborative project like because it started out as just, like, just solely Evan's baby, and mm-hmm. then as time went on, we all kind of got invested in it, and, and he he was more willing to step outside of his comfort zones as a solo writer and start incorporating more of ideas. And, and I mean, even m- like myself, I don't typically write collaboratively either it's if i'm if i'm writing something i mean i've done like whatever film and game stuff is obviously all me and then like even whatever musical stuff i've done in the past like that's all just me right so so it's kind of like how do we how do we just do it and like not even so much an ego thing because i think we all like have relatively tame egos and like that's not so much of a problem it's just literally like how do we do this because we we would like the first time evan and i got together to to try and write some stuff it's kind of like oh this is cool not playing my instrument waiting for you to figure out how this riff is going to work for three days (laughs) like (laughs) yeah you and i know that very well for sure (laughs) yeah right (laughs) i mean but like i feel like it like you and i've had better success with it maybe because it would be like like a drum and like note instrument, you know, whether it be bass or whatever I was playing. Like I, I feel like that is a little bit easier to collaborate on because when you sit behind the drums, you're naturally a little bit more focused on the rhythm aspect and mm-hmm. maybe the overall arrangement, but you're not getting at, at least like based on just what you're sitting at too involved in the notes. But Evan and I are very much note people and, and very in, Evan is especially slow with his notes. Like what the way that he'll write a song is like, so all of Wilder Run songs are more or less through composed. Mm-hmm. So he just kind of like the first thing he writes is almost always the first thing in a song. And he, so he plays through that until he feels like he, he knows what needs to come next. Then he plays through those two ideas over and over until he feels like he knows what comes next. And it just goes on. So he's like, I just spend endless hours writing songs with that process but that's like the only way he can really do it Mm -hmm. Um, i mean that's especially nuts for listeners who haven't yet listened to will to run because (laughs) some of these songs are like 10 plus minutes long yeah he'll literally like spend 10 minutes playing through the song so he knows what the next 30 seconds are gonna be like nuts (laughs) (laughs) but you know and, and i mean i used to write more like that I remember from like my early high school kind of projects, that was my general approach. I was like, well, if you, I'm going to start with the beginning of a song, cause I don't know what comes before this. So that's what I'm going to start with. Um, and then I, I started 
listening to more electronic music and start writing electronic music and started using Ableton Live. And the idea of having this kind of clips view where you have everything is in this non-linear fashion. I was like, this completely changed the way I, I think about writing. And um, and also some things that like my pre- professors have said. I, re- I remember one time showing a professor a song I was working on and it was like the first 30, 45 seconds. And he was like, all right, this is really cool, but how how can you write this intro and this build-up if you don't know what you're building up to? Um, which, you know, is obviously in Evan's case, like, he figures it out. Might take him years, but, <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, in, so, I mean, that kind of stuck with me and I was like, you know, that, that makes sense. Like I'm, I'm, I'm having this intro that I like, but by having that intro, I'm somewhat limiting what the main verse is going to sound like, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, and that's arguably more important. I mean, you need a good intro, of course, but the, the song is the verse and the chorus. And if you don't have that structure, I mean, like maybe in the case of Wilderun, you can get away with not doing that so much because it's not a verse chorus kind of band. So maybe that does work better. And maybe you couldn't really work it the other way. But even then, it's something we're trying. Yeah, you know? I, I feel like even then there are parts that feel like choruses, even if they only happen once, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of the trick to writing like a really terrific progressive or extreme metal song is like you can write the form however you want like it's it can it's a genre that lends itself to somewhat abstract forms but you still have to present a clear hook of some kind at some point you know right and that's something even if go ahead even if that hook is like something um not melodic you know if you think of like just like really wacky bands like gore guts or uh, imperial triumphant mm-hmm. like do these wild things that you there's nothing remotely resembling a chorus in any of their material but there's certain like recurring kind of sounds or just techniques that stick out to me like right. okay that's what gets me hooked in yeah there's points of emphasis you know yeah like compositionally because you know there's obviously I, i've you know, my take on this is the the comparisons between heavy metal and classical music, I feel, are wildly overblown in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah. But the idea of having like, OK, yeah, we're building to this point as the thing that you remember from the song or remember from the piece. That's a similarity between the two. But right. just sort of sliding from that into the next subject. One of the things is you're not just the bassist of Will to Run, you're also an arranger you're kind of responsible for a lot of the more symphonic elements in the band is that right yep yeah wayne and i share the duties on that Mm -hmm. so that's that's a very that's easily the most complicated process of of any wild run album has has always been um i mean the, the process has basically been at least for the last two records is that evan wayne and i will will all sit together or we'll skype or whatever and and we'll We'll listen through the song, and every, whatever, 10, 15 seconds, whenever there's a new timestamp, we, we mark that timestamp, we'll be like, okay, brass needs to come up, maybe high strings come in, maybe we add a synth sound, and, and we just do that, and we have, like, pages and pages of notes for every little moment. Mm-hmm. It, it's all, like, the orchestra is basically all mapped out on paper before it's, and a note is actually written for it, and that's that's worked well. Because you you go into it kind of knowing what everyone expects it to you know like because sometimes in in a demo you just don't really get like oh this is supposed to be the big epic kind of crescendo moment of the song like based on like whatever crappy keyboards you might be using to just demo out your quick idea this might just sound like an interlude you know? right right <laughs> and it's like oh okay so now it, I know how to like based on certain words that Evan will use I'll be like okay. I, I know I know what that means. I know how that translates to arranging. Mm-hmm. Can you give an example off the top of your head? No worries if not, but yeah, I mean like he'll he'll say something like like he'll use the phrase like kind of oh wall of sound or washy or something like that. And when he says stuff like that, it's like I, I know that doesn't mean just like big like open large chords that fill like the the sonic spectrum so much as that like, there's going to be a lot of moving parts in here. And there's just like, 
it's there's gonna, not going to be one focus. It's all just going to come at you in one big mess, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So it's so it's a lot of stuff like that. And I mean, luckily Evans a very good musician and he knows how to speak about things in a very theoretical way as well as that he was previously a drummer too makes makes when he's talking to john about ideas like there'll there'll be times where like be coming up night with an idea and he'll be like okay yeah john that's that sounds pretty good but i i want to change it up this little like one note here is just kind of throwing me off and he'll try and explain it but sometimes he just can't so he can just go sit at the drums and kind of play roughly what he's thinking. And then John's like, okay, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Then move on, you know. So that we've got really good communication between the bands, and that helps a lot, and especially with the orchestrations. Mm-hmm. What was what was uh, the difference in terms of orchestrating for the newest record for Vale compared to the previous records? Was there a, a difference of approach? Because it seems like that's another area where the band kind of took a bit of a leap in terms of sophistication and subtlety and all of that. At least that's my impression. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the big thing that I walked out of the, the sleep sessions thinking was like, we put way too much shit in the orchestra. There's way too many like different little counter melodies and these little things happening in individual instruments that just got lost in the sauce. And like, there was no, I mean, there's parts that we had to either like completely remove or they were t- turned down so much that they were inaudible or we had to, because like this one oboe line was so important to us, we had to like turn down the rhythm guitar to compensate for it. And I was like, it's not usually something that I like to do. I mean, I, I as much as I like the orchestra to be present in Wilder Run, I also don't want it to be like, well, let's not forget about the band that's happening too. Mm-hmm. So this record was much more like, okay, let's focus less on how many different things are happening and just like put a bunch of shit on on like two or three things happening. Really layer everything. Every single orchestral sample is layered with another brand of orchestral sample so that you never hear like, oh, that's the Spitfire audio strings right there. It's like, no, it's because it's mixed with 8DO or something like that. (laughs) And it, it just gives this this warmer sound it it, it smoothens smoothens out all the the flubby elements that are inherent in every sample library mm-hmm. and uh as well as just like we we finally kind of said like let's use synthesizers too like and and not in a way that was kind of like going to detract from the organic nature of Wilderun but enhance it instead so the, a lot of the string samples especially in like big open chords are like these kind of uh you know, Juno 80s string sounds are, are underneath as well because they're just so consistent and they, they hold a nice sustain. Right. They almost make it sound more real in context despite sounding fake on their own. Exactly. Because if you're in a room with an orchestra, you're, you're going to have that from just the natural reverb and the feeling of being in a room. You can only recreate that so much with samples. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a that was a big thing. And we're definitely, like, trying to figure out how to incorporate more synth. And we're getting more and more daring with it. It's it's always been something that's, like, I mean, I personally, like, I love the shit out of synths. Um, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, we like, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it's, so it's, like, I'm always trying to push that as much as possible. And, like, slowly I'm, like, work, working my way in here, like, and just taking over this aspect of Wilderun sound. <laughs> like, <laughs> just seeing how much I can get away with. Like, we were working on some stuff recently, and, and I, I put I used these kind of, like, synth drums affected out and stuff like that. And I was like, what about this? And it was like, uh, I was like, okay, a little too much. We'll dial this back. <laughs> <laughs> too much too soon. you got to ease them into the synth drums, you know? <laughs> so there's one particular moment of orchestration that I've got to highlight. And I remember texting you, I I hit you up on Instagram, the minute I heard it, I was just like, oh my God, this, (laughs) so in the final track, there's this like woodwinds and flute, like bed that kind of swoops in out of nowhere. And it is unlike anything else I've heard on a metal record it. And I didn't understand exactly like what was, why it like struck me as being so odd until I read an interview that you did where you, you mentioned a Fleet Foxes record 
as a particular inspiration on the orchestration. I was like, oh, this is a freak folk moment on a fucking <laughs> like metal album. This is wild. So how did that happen? Well, so that that part was easily um, the most difficult part to write. Evan had a very particular kind of vibe he wanted to get out of it. And and we were just like Wayne and I were just racking our brains trying to create that somehow and like so he Evan had mentioned he's like I'm very inspired by Sufjan Stevens on that moment mm, yes like, especially the the Illinois record yeah he's like when we're listening it's like okay I, I think I know what needs to happen I, I know what he wants how the fuck do we do this without real players because it's that's so like everything that that we that at least I was throwing at it was just just didn't sound organic enough and um and he was like, I want it to be chaotic and simultaneously, you know, like a step down from the everything that was happening previously, obviously with the, the metal guitars and the blast beats and all that. But he's like, I still want the energy to keep going. And we're like, OK, this is this is some new shit we have to learn. <laughs> and and, um, and like after I had thrown my hands up in the air and just. I gave it entirely to Wayne at this point. I'm like, fuck it, you do it. And, and, and Wayne just nailed it. I mean, it took him several, several revisions to, to get that too, but finally found like the right kind of library to do. And, and like, cause we also had to, we, we didn't know exactly what the notes were going to be either. Like that was one of the few moments where Evan was kind of like the notes can change substantially here from what I have in the demos. Like I'm not, I'm not sold on it. So that was really like, okay, we're in, we're in open waters now, <laughs> but yeah, he got them. The, the woodwinds I think is something that I personally really like about wilderness material. And it's something that I want to keep exploring more of because it's a very underused texture in metal. Yeah, entirely. Yeah. That's, I was thinking a lot about like what separates Wilderun from other like symphonic metal. And I think that it's, Obviously, there's there's the brass, there's the strings, you've got some choral sounds, but it is sort of the attention to be like, oh, yeah, let's just like shrink it down and have some flutes and woodwinds is right. You're you're using a much broader palette of like, quote unquote, classical instruments that I think get thrown away because they don't immediately scream like bombast, big, you know, opera, right. like it's it's actually a more holistic approach to to arranging, which I, I really appreciate as a listener. I think they're harder to write for too, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing, well, even with real players. But but I find especially with samples because because in an orchestra, you know, if you have like if you have your string section, there's a bunch of string players in your typical orchestra. The the woodwind players, I mean, you might have two flutes, mm-hmm. and a lot of like uh, of the libraries are recorded with a couple people. So like, how do you get that to fill out the space? So, well, part of that is knowing how to arrange within the section itself, but also when to like bring in a cello or something to like to layer in with it, or a lot of times now, you know, layering in synths too to 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 fatten up and sound, smoothen mm-hmm. out those things. But I mean, I think it's just such a beautiful texture, and they have like, I mean, it's easily the most diverse sounding musical group within an orchestra the difference between a bassoon and a piccolo is night and day right yeah 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 how much does text painting come into your thinking when you're arranging for the band like how much are you analyzing like what does this section need to mean versus Mm. like what is just going to make it sound the best i think well because the lyrics all come after the music or at least they're, they're kind of written Evan usually starts writing the lyrics around the time that we like we have all the orchestral stuff mapped out and we start like uh, Wayne and I actually start writing them. Gotcha. Because at that point, Evan's Evan's not as involved with the orchestrations aside from checking our progress and listening to how things are going. Um, So we're not so much about like, oh, what the like the songs inherently just have musical meaning and and the structures are are important enough to us that to fit lyrics to them is not overly difficult because i think there there's a there's a similarity between like the, the the cinematic arc 
of the music itself and what would naturally have to happen in the lyrics. Right. So it, it, it kind of writes itself in that way. Yeah. I've noticed in a lot of the interviews that you've been given, you are talking about the lyrics a fair amount. Do you feel comfortable doing that given that you're not involved in the actual creation of them? Is that something that is maybe talked about like behind the scenes about what the meaning behind the band is? I mean, I could like, I can talk about the generalities of, of each album kind of what the lyrical goals were or at least and and how it relates to me i mean sometimes i've heard evan talk about certain lyrics of certain songs i'm like oh that's not quite how i interpreted it mm-hmm. actually but it's definitely it's something that i actually want to get more involved in and on the next record I've, I've i'm i'm making a point once we get to that stage to really like he's always sent the lyrics to me to kind of like double check to make sure that there's nothing awkward and he, he's lately been like demoing them out with the music too Mm -hmm. and at least on the last two records i would be like i would listen to the demo and i'd be like okay i'm reading along with the lyrics there's nothing within the lyrics that seems obviously weird to me and they i'm always more concerned with how the the phonetic aspect of the lyric plays out in the music I'll, i'll be like this just sounds weird this word doesn't work because that's that's how i hear music for the most part i don't I almost couldn't like give you a lyric of any band, but I was like, I can sing along with as it's happening because it's part of the music. Right. It's part of the sounds Um, of the, of the song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a Sigur Ross kind of thing Mm -hmm. at that point. It's like, I I listen to Sigur Ross. I'm like, that's how I hear all music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I found the lyrics to be really fascinating on this record too. Mm. You know, obviously you're kind of like throwing down the gauntlet by quoting Wordsworth at the beginning and then, you know, throwing down an additional gauntlet by <laughs> quoting fucking T.S. Eliot by the end of it. And I, I, just, I don't know. I just want to kind of like talk at you about the lyrics if you're OK with that. Yeah. Yeah. To, to me, what struck me is it's it's those two authors or, or poets as sources to cite are really interesting because they're from two very different eras in English history, you know, mm-hmm. like Wordsworth is kind of like this romantic who's responding to like industrialization being the destruction of like, you know, it's the sort of disenchantment of the world that like, uh, you know, Weber describes. And uh, mm-hmm. then that same process eventually leads to like, you know, global war. And that's what T.S. Eliot is responding to, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that poem that's cited at the, at the very end of the record is like one of the last things he did, like while the firebombing of England was going on. And so it's these kind of like two bookends of the process of disenchantment, you know? Right. And to say that they're actually like, you know, while they're hundreds of years apart or like however many years apart, they're responding to the same sensation kind of establishes that the idea that is going through the lyrics, which is this sort of sense of like disillusionment with the world and trying to come to grips with like, how do you find meaning outside of yourself? And how do you like escape this sort of like corruption of your own view of the world is at least how I would, I was interpreting a lot of the lyrics. Yeah. But specifically like having that as the bookend kind of says like, this is not a problem specific to one era like this is an eternally right. recurrent problem that you will have to deal with at all times. So it kind of like allows the album to be a bit more timeless than it would be if you had simply said like, no, it's all the 1700s, you know, instead mm-hmm. it's, it opens this up to, it opens the record up to a much wider degree of meaning. Well, that's interesting. Cause I, I never, I never thought about that. And I actually wasn't really aware of like, I, I don't know too much about those particular poets aside from those poems because i've heard them a lot now (laughs) (laughs) um but i think that actually speaks very clearly to the essence or or one of the um kind of main proponent proponents of what wilderun is about is that wilderun is not time-based there's nothing that we do that we try to make too specific to a a period piece or anything with the exception of olden tales i mean that that was it's kind of in the title you know yeah that was yeah exactly right i mean that that album was all about taking old american folk songs and turning them into progressive folk metal but everything since then has been like okay wilderun is about this organic 
atmosphere mixed with timeless sounds and feelings that at least up until now have been mostly if not entirely personal and and inner not to say that we couldn't do or or wouldn't do an album that speaks more to the the world as a separate entity or anything but but if we do something like that it it can't be you can't point out be like that's that time period that they're talking about or something it's it's very it's it's just this kind of mystical spirit or something that we have floating around and and that's kind of how we try and operate mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was listening to some of the audio from the previous interview. And one of the ideas that I think I was maybe harping on a bit too much was the idea of escapism, you know, mm-hmm. and that being, you know, this is obviously 2015. So it was a, a very different time than it is mm-hmm. now. And like the value of escapism is very different then mm-hmm. compared to what it feels like these days. Um, right. But what I really loved is I felt like on this record, it's almost like you're kind of taking an ax to the idea of escapism to some degree, like the idea of having these sort of internal meanings that don't actually reflect anything in the real world is actually like described as almost like poisonous, you know, like there's, there's all these images of like dark darkness, like seeping in internally into someone's mind and like destroying the world. And you can kind of have like an ecological view of that but i also think it is just like the idea that like you cannot get trapped within the self you have to like Mm -hmm. open yourself up to see the world as it is instead Mm -hmm. of you know like even in the title of the song like the tyranny of imagination like the idea this thing can consume you entirely if you don't connect it to something outside of yourself yeah well i think that and i mean for me like the end of the day the most important thing is 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 your self and how you inter- interface with the rest of the world because obviously the rest of the world is important because it influences who you are just inherently but it can run away from you and you can run away from yourself and 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 it and then it's all moot and it becomes confusing and just overall more difficult i think like the idea of veil of imagination for me is is very much focused on like on the self viewing the world from your own eyes that don't feel like your own eyes, or at least Mm. you're trying, you're, you're intensely aware of your own eyes and your own perception of things to the point where it's not helpful. Like we, we constantly value the, 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 the the guy who can just look at something and tell you what it is. He understands it. And we're like, Oh, okay, that's great. It's like, but, we don't really understand a lot of things and we pretend to understand things or we think we understand things, but also is that important? It's a lot of just kind of questioning all these different things and, and the idea of kind of, is it good to have these solid concrete ideas about the world and believe in them wholly, or is it better to question everything and, and, the answer is probably neither. Right. Both of them can be traps in their own way. Like you either accept everything right. at face value and will, you know, believe everything that's shoved down your throat. Or if you question everything, then nothing means anything and you're fucked, you know, then you yeah. might as well believe anything and that you leave yourself just as open to deception and self doubt as you would if you believed everything. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a weird place to be when you kind of come to that realization. And I mean, as we were talking about earlier with like um, the idea of a a quarter life crisis, it's like that's kind of I feel like at least where I experience that is like that dichotomy of understanding and not understanding and figuring out, well, what is my place in the world? Mm -hmm. Because up until that point, you're you're kind of just you're just kind of riding the wave. Like, you know what comes next. Like, after seventh grade comes eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And after high school comes college, if that's what your plan is, you know. And and so I just kind of coasted that wave, and then it came to an abrupt end, and I was like, I don't know what to believe anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Because I was always told, like, all right, now you go and you do the thing that you have been trained for. And I was like, but nobody wants it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's especially tough with music. I think especially, like going the academic route with music because Mm -hmm. you're kind of 
led to believe that there's some sort of meritocracy in place because it's been there while you've been getting better and better at music that at the end of the line, the meritocracy will continue. And it just does not like suddenly all forms of value just kind of vanish compared to the ones that you'd like gone through to like, just like you, you, do you get what I'm saying here? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily agree with it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I think like, I mean, I do still view music as a, as a meritocracy. And I think end of the day in one, in one form or another, every successful musician has some merit to them. It might've came more easily to them than others might've been handed to them. Um, and, and they just kind of rode with it. Um, I just meant like as someone who doesn't, has not figured out how to translate those skills into that mm. value, there is a, there is a breaking point where you have to learn a bunch of new skills and, uh, create new meaning in order to do the same thing that you're talking about. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that I agree with. Yeah. I mean, you're just kind of like, I, I mean, after college, it's not like you're trying to get an A anymore. You're just trying to feed yourself right. and, <laughs> and maybe, uh, maybe a compromise is necessary here and there. And that's a tough thing to, to learn when your entire time in mu- music school, you're told to, you know, be different and make daring choices. Mm-hmm. And then you, and then you start doing music for someone. They're like, I don't want any of that. <laughs> <laughs> I want the inception right, right. <laughs> 3,000 times. So you do other arranging still outside of Wilderun, is that right? You, you're, are you still doing sound design, or is that just completely fallen to the wayside at this point? I uh, I mean, like, I'm not doing it regularly. If someone came to me with a cool project and was like, can you do sound design or music for this film or something, I'd be like, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I've done... Um, I've done some other like orchestra or uh, orchestral work for other bands like Aether Realm. I I orchestrated um, their second record, Tarot. Mm-hmm. So and and that's I mean stuff like that's like something I I hope to do more. Um, I just I just got recently involved with this this other project called Cora, which like I'm just dipping my feet in. Like I haven't actually really started orchestrating anything yet. But so they got Wayne and I involved in that and. So that we're we're gonna be kind of orchestrating that next record, um, I might be playing bass on it as well. So things like that, like I want to c- continue to mostly focus on just other band stuff. Sure, that like that's what where most of I think I have the freedom that I'm not, I'm not so much tied down to a visual. I guess mm-hmm. like I kind of control it. Like I have visuals in my head as I'm writing anything, but but if I decide what's coming out of my fingers is better than what's coming out of my brain. I'm going to listen to my fingers. So So that's all stuff that you can kind of do COVID or no COVID, you know, to some extent, but it does feel like this is a very shitty situation for y'all to be in where you have like the biggest album of your career and no one can tour for a year and a half. Um, Yeah, it's great. (laughs) How are you, uh, how are you handling that? Uh, I mean, I've, I'm grateful that we have this new album that we're working on right now, and that's kind of keeping us occupied, and that we've we've had these songs floating around for a little bit now. Mm-hmm. So it's not like like all of a sudden we had to pump the brakes, expecting to go on tour, and now we're like at home, like time to like force creativity. It's, so at least the, that ball was already rolling. So that's not too bad. And and we've got some other things uh, lined up. We we just started working with the uh, Rock the Nation touring, mm-hmm. and and they've got us booked for the upcoming uh, Soil Work European tour. Oh fuck yeah, cool! In in fall of next year. So that's that that's that's going to be announced real soon. That's and that's okay to put out there too. Sure. <laughs> like the our our manager from Rock the Nation said, like yeah, go ahead and do that and. You know, um, breaking so, news, you know, breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> so like, so that's been great. And it's been really nice working with someone t- who can handle a bit more of the, the, the booking aspect and the, and the, the business side, at least. So he's, he's kind of like handling our, our business aspects in all regards right now. And then the, uh, the booking side on 
in Europe. He doesn't do North America, so we still have to kind of figure out how we're going to manage that. But it's great to just have be able to focus a little bit more on the the, the music aspect. But at the same time, you know, we think like, okay, great, we we signed to to a big label now. We can we can just you know be the musicians and they just tell us where to be it's like well we still have to kind of okay almost everything that they do they they send it by us they run it by us mm-hmm. which is great i mean end of the day i'd much rather have that and have to spend the time checking over everything then they're just like will run said this and I'm like did we did i <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know the mic was on <laughs> but uh no i mean it's 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 been really good so far and i i've actually been kind of for the first time in my musical career, kind of enjoying the the business aspect of it because mm-hmm. I kind of feel like, okay, like if I make this decision, things are going to happen. It feels a little bit more important than just kind of like, well, what color T-shirt are we going to print? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, 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 right. And if like I have a question about something, I have knowledgeable people to to tell me what the right answer is. So mm-hmm. I'm not completely on my own on that. And so speaking of just like music versus business balance, you're also one of the only musicians that I think I've had on this podcast that also has to deal with sort of family life music balance. And so I, you know, this is obviously like a, these particular circumstances aside where no one knows how to balance Mm -hmm. all these things. (laughs) How were you previously balancing those two different commitments? I mean, it's definitely not easy. Like there's certain hours of a day where, where I have to work on things like you know after my son goes to bed like that's like okay I can I can I can work now you know and and that maybe that's only 2 hours before I pass out and I have to go to bed and do everything over again mm. and then I kind of have to force creativity within that time period luckily luckily my wife Katie's very accommodating towards Wilderun and and my aspirations and if I'm like if I'm like sitting on the couch hanging out and then maybe I'm just kind of like dicking around on a guitar or something and i'm like i have to record this idea she's not like oh there he goes again you know <laughs> look like she, she lets me do that and figure that out and then um and like she's like yeah go on tour you know do things you know she because she knows like yeah i gotta, gotta keep this guy sane because <laughs> so, i mean I, I get really like neurotic and just kind of like pent up if i'm not like doing musical things like even if it's not in the forefront of my mind sometimes i'll be like really focused on other things i'll be like oh, i have this woodworking project i really want to get done and then i kind of ignore music for like a week and i'm just kind of like this fucking stroke <laughs> it's like it's like oh i probably need to like play a riff right <laughs> <laughs> always a good solution to any minor annoyance is play a riff you know <laughs> So what else are you, are, do you have any other musical projects that you've been working on lately outside of Will to Run? I know that you had previously, you know, you work on electronic music and you've got your own solo interest. Is any of that coming to the forefront at any time soon? Oh, that's one of those things. It's, I mean, that's been around for, I mean, maybe almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Like the, like, <laughs> the songs, like the last batch of songs that I, I wrote for that are, I think, like four or five years old at this point. Um, and I still come back to them and, you know, we kind of like poke around at ideas on that. We being, um, myself and my wife. So she's going to be doing the vocals on that project and I do all the production work and all that. It's one of those things that like, I really want to do, but it's really hard to just find the time right now. That's like, if, if Wilderun like were to take a break or something, I could, I could jump back into it and probably like get get a whole album done pretty quickly with the material I already have but it's it's it is something that I want to do more because I do really enjoy that process I enjoy like sitting at a synthesizer for hours or in front of a computer for hours and tinkering with sounds mm-hmm. luckily I'm fulfilling more of that with Wilderun these days than I have in the past so maybe that's what's kind of keeping me from like forcing it into my life but uh, I mean, like you know, we had we had our kid and everything, and it's just like it's just a lot going on right now. So it's it's at some I I des- it has to come out at some point. It has to right, like one way or another, like it it will. But you know, 
Gotta be the right time, I guess. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, shit, we've been going for over an hour. I don't want to keep you forever. Uh, I want to give you the time to do what you need to do and get your productivity and creativity in while you can. Um, but this has been fucking rad, man. I'm so glad that we got to talk. You know, I feel like there's yeah, there's so much more that we just need to talk about in general because, like, life's been insane. But I'm, I'm really proud of while. you, man. Like, this is – it's so exciting to, like, have, you know – one of my friends on Century Media putting out like dope shit. Like this is just like full circle for me in so many ways. It's it's awesome. Thanks, dude. I mean, it's it's really great to to finally be able to talk to you again and have like a good like full conversation that's not like at a loud bar where some other band is playing. <laughs> <laughs> yep, 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 yep. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I like listening to the, the last Lambda Forms record and everything. I was like. Man, there's there's some good stuff there. Like <laughs> like really like like that's that's very quintessential Ian material. Yes. And it was I, it was really funny for me because like somehow somehow I missed that that when that album came out. Like at, I mean I was take I was at that time I think I was taking a break from a lot of social media stuff. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's like it just kind of slipped under the radar then. And then like and then I finally like like I was like, oh, I wonder what Ian's up to, and then I, I, I see that album. Like, this was a whole album that came out. I didn't know about. Like, and it's and it and it's based off a of Sisyphus that he's been talking about for decades, like, <laughs> <laughs> which is very Sisyphus, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it was good to get that out of my system. I'll say that much. You know, I, I bet. <laughs> Well, yeah, I've got another album in the works right now, so I'll be sure to to keep you up to date about how that's going too. So, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, can't wait to hear. It. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for for coming on to the pod. It's been awesome talking to you, and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you again for listening, and thank you, Daniel, for joining me. You can find Wilderun's music at wilderun.bandcamp.com, and you can find links to their Facebook. YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter pages at willderun.com. You can find more episodes of the podcast on the iTunes podcast app or at soundcloud.com slash lamniforms sounds. And you can follow me on Twitter at lamniforms underscore or on Instagram at iankcorp. More episodes soon. Until next time.